I'm not telling people that, you know, Joseph composed this, uh, to heck with your faith. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't gold plates. I'm not saying that there wasn't inspiration. I'm not saying that it's not true. What I am saying is when it comes to the human being's capacity and abilities, could someone in Joseph Smith with his background, limited education, and what we know about participation in juvenile debate society and as a Methodist exhorter in spotty common school education, could someone like that have produced a work like the Book of Mormon using the method of a simple common method he could have learned in an afternoon of laying down the heads and preparing those heads and then finally uh, with these outlines in mind dictating extemporaneously the words could he could someone like that have done this and created the book of mormon yes absolutely yes william davis is the author of visions in a seer stone Joseph Smith and the Making of the Book of Mormon, published last year by the University of North Carolina Press. It is this book that William and I discuss at length in the podcast today. We try to cover some of the most interesting topics in the book. Joseph Smith's history with seer stones, his early experience with exhorting and debate society, and aspects of 19th century sermon culture familiar to Smith that end up within the text of the Book of Mormon. Whether you believe the Book of Mormon is a translation of ancient records, or that Joseph Smith was the author, Davis's work sheds greater light on the production process. William also spends time addressing common apologetics around Joseph Smith's level of education, and whether he was capable of producing a work like the Book of Mormon naturalistically. We begin the interview by discussing William's academic background, and what led him from studying Shakespeare to Joseph Smith. So my background, it's really kind of eclectic. I got my undergraduate degree in film studies, of all things, but I was also in an actor training program. And I, at the same time, was studying anthropology and linguistics. If I had stayed one more year at the University of Utah, I would have walked away with about four degrees. But I was going to say, that is an eclectic mix, yeah. <laughs> I decided to get out when I could. And at first, I uh, pursued things more related with performance. Um, I did a, I was in the master's program at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, where we um, obviously have to pay close attention to a text, not only to understand it, but then to be able to perform it. Um, I didn't finish there. I transferred to uh, a new program that started at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C., and um, they had a program in classical acting, and it was almost exclusively Shakespeare, but we also um, did, you know, Jacobean and other time periods around that, ones that sure. we're dealing with first. And that's when um, I really got interested in the text because Shakespeare, acting Shakespeare is, is difficult if you don't have a really um, strong understanding of uh, blank verse, uh, how how to speak it in a way that an audience can understand it, being really specific about what the language means. And in the course of doing that, um, 
I stumbled across a lot of places in the text where Shakespeare was using complex chiasmus of all things. Mm, right. And so that's kind of what started turning me more towards scholarship. Um, after I finished that, I went to uh, New York and I was living there doing some acting projects, also further involved in digital imaging and design. I got a degree at NYU in, uh, in that area, but I still wasn't satisfied. I still felt um, I wanted to pursue the scholarship more, especially with Shakespeare. And I had gotten a couple of publications out about Shakespeare's use of classical rhetoric as well as chiasmus. And then I decided eventually I wanted to go back to school to get a PhD. And so I went to UCLA. Uh, I got in the theater and performance program. And it, it's um, to understand exactly what that is. It's not just theater or doing theater history or learning about history and historiography and methods of writing history. Um, but the performance studies was also critical theory. It was heavily involved in critical theory. So we're dealing a lot with um, not just what's happening in theater, but what's happening in society, mm. not just performances on stage, but performances in culture, the way people behave, the way people, uh, you know, instead of, a stage being where people are, you know, putting on a show of Hamlet, we might also study something like the way that a political debate takes place and the rhetorical strategies and things that people do in order to, you know, try to win the audience to their side of uh, a point of view. So things like that. And so that's where I moved into it is, is I started looking at these types of cultural performances and then um, ultimately that led to looking at, Joseph Smith and the way that he used the seer stone to dictate the Book of Mormon and how this was another type of cultural performance and where that came from, how it operated, and, and what that could tell us about Joseph Smith and the creation of the Book of Mormon. So that's the long story about how I eventually wound my way to this book and the background leading up to it. That's the, the connection between Shakespeare and Joseph Smith, right? <laughs> yeah. They both use chiasmus. <laughs> I uh, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because um, that that's uh, I don't know if it's your thesis, but it's one of the main um, thrusts of the book is is that um, the Book of Mormon should be looked at as a as a performance piece almost, right? Am I yeah. am I putting that correctly? Yeah, this is uh, the Book of Mormon um, shows all the signs, all the hallmarks of an orally produced and orally derived work. Um, so there's, there isn't, um, the way that someone would sit down and compose a book and to write it out. Now, when we think of composing a book, we think of sitting down, writing down a passage, basically like a rough draft, then going back over it again and again, trying right. to choose certain words, trying to clean it up, trying to make it look nice. And that, that process takes a lot of time. And it's a way of just trying to clean up the text to make it run smoothly. In a performance, especially of the kind that I'm proposing that Joseph Smith did, uh, that doesn't happen. That process is an entirely different process. 
And what would happen here, and it's what Joseph Smith, what I argue he was doing, and it's the same thing that preachers all around him were doing, is they would think about what they wanted to talk about. Then uh, as they started to organize their thoughts, they might write down a really brief, short outline that um, some people would write out the entire sermon. Those were long notes, but then you had what Mm -hmm. were called short notes or briefs, and these would just be um, a few three or four sometimes main points and they just to get the outline in their mind. But then when they would get up to uh, deliver the sermon, um, none of the words were prepared in advance. They would just speak it as they go and, and just basically follow that outline as a guidepost. And that results, there are certain characteristics of spoken uh, the, the types of repetition that you get, um, there are certain default patterns that people fall into. Uh, parallelisms are extremely common mm-hmm. in spoken uh, language in, in that in those types of presentations, um, for an example. And uh, But just because people are speaking and trying to reiterate an idea, and because they're speaking, and usually the training the situation is that someone is speaking to an audience, there's a lot more repetition because you're trying to drill a point home with an audience. And you get less of that in a literary where someone's sitting down and composing. And so um, when we look at the text of the Book of Mormon, it has all kinds of indications that there that it was derived from a spoken delivery as opposed to a written composition. And you know, I have to say that that's a, that's a mistake that I see people make all the time and continue to make. Oh, yeah. They try to say, I wrote a book and this took me two years and I was (laughs) writing drafts and drafts and revising and moving things. So there's no way that this uneducated farm boy could produce a book like this, the Book of Mormon in three months, but they're comparing apples to oranges. Right. The production of the Book of Mormon did not follow that process. Now, the outcome might look the same, i.e. we have a book, but the process of creating that book is totally different from an oral performance view. It's just all you do is sit down, create some sketch outlines, kind of get those outlines in mind, and then you deliver it. You just speak it. And uh, and that's and, and whatever you have is what you have at the end of that. And you don't go back and you could go back and revise if you wanted to, but you don't have to. And, uh, and it's, it's a very fast way to produce work. And that's the process Joseph Smith was following. So comparisons to somebody, somebody's literary output is, is an, it's a false equivalency. Can't make that comparison. Right. Well, I, I, let's, let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, I think when we, when, when people think of the history of, of the book of Mormon and that in the production process, maybe your, your average person thinks, um, you know, it begins with, uh, you know, vision or it begins with finding golden plates and things of that nature. But, but I would argue, and I think you argue it goes back further, right? It goes back to a seer stone. And I don't think people are used to, to factoring that into the equation or, or thinking about it as, as, as that being sort of the beginning of this process. But, um, can we talk about that a little bit? I mean, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on, on the magical worldview, unless you just think it's relevant, but it might be a good idea to sort of talk about the, the part that the seer stone plays in all of this and, 
and uh, you know, leading up to to the Book of Mormon production. What do you think? Okay, yeah, um, that's always an interesting question because we, you know, I have always have those questions: of what exactly is the nature of a seer stone? How did it operate in Joseph Smith's time period? Um, the way that people describe their experience with seer stones, it's primarily visionary. In other words, they're seeing images. Right. Sometimes a text can be included in a broader vision, uh, but normally, um, it, it, normally it's rare to see um, any kind of account of someone looking in a seer stone and seeing nothing but text in front of them. So that. Um, and for Joseph, I guess thing, in the in the beginning, it's it wasn't text necessarily. It was. Uh, like you said, visionary, seeing objects, lost objects, and finding, and being able to find them that way, right? Right. And and so Joseph Smith was basically within that culture where it was this visionary aspect of it. So you look into the stone, and through whatever um, experience they had staring in the stone, they would um, claim to see visions of um, of imagery. And so how that will connect up to the Book of Mormon. I think uh, now in 1823 in September, when Joseph said that Moroni um, came to him and told him about these records that was buried. And this is one thing I also touch on when it comes to the translation is that even though Joseph Smith did not have access to the plates for several more years, um, what I am arguing is that if Joseph were ever curious about the history recorded on the plates or what the plates even may have looked like that he certainly could have done that according to this magic worldview by taking the seer stone that he's mm-hmm. using to look for lost objects and simply gain a vision of what those plates might be. So he could actually gain access to the text, even to the narratives on the text in preparation of when he would receive the plates and then begin um, the formal translation dictation process. I think uh, when I think about the Sears stone and what it meant to Joseph Smith, um, I kind of fall in between things. Uh, and what I mean by that is on the one hand, people see the Sears stone as a mystical object that had these powers of creating luminous words on the surface of the stone. Um, I don't see evidence for that in the textual evidence and the residue or residue, what's left behind, like the uh, manuscripts, the original manuscript that Oliver Cowdery and others wrote. On the other, because, because that would indicate it was a very tight translation process, you mean? Yeah, and I don't see I don't see evidence of a tight translation yeah. process. On um, on the other hand, people might say that the stone had um, was nothing more than something to focus his attention. And um, in terms of function, that could be, I think that is true, but I think it involved more because I think Joseph Smith really did believe that by focusing on the seer stone, that that, uh, and because the seer stone was part of this magical economy Mm -hmm. where a person could gain access to higher knowledge and spiritual knowledge, revelation, that it was his way of tapping into that deeper 
more esoteric, uh, mystical source of knowledge. And, and so I believe that that's what the seer stone represented for him. Um, and, and I mean, I don't want to sound pejorative when I make this comparison, but in a way it's almost like, you know, Dumbo needing his feather in order to fly, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and so the, it, it was something where it was a necessary object early on because that was his link. That was his way of gaining access to that type of divine inspiration that he was looking for. I think it also, um, and you may agree or, or disagree, I think it also grants the holder a certain level of authority, right? Um, in, in, mm-hmm. this, in this mystic worldview that Joseph Smith is growing up in, someone who has a seer stone, uh, you know, um, claims to have certain um, uh, revelatory, visionary experiences, um, and it sort of, I guess, puts you in a, in a, in a position of, of authority, so to speak. So that, that stone sort of sets him apart in a way, right. Yeah. Um, sort of validates his, uh, his abilities, I think. Yeah. And, and it, it, it would not only set him apart as someone who's able to use the seer stone. Um, Cause there were other people using seer stones, of course. And so that did kind of put him in a privileged position. But the other aspect that does give him that authority is there are people like Sally Chase, for example, who could look into a seer stone and see something, but it's in the act of being able to interpret what they see or what they experience into language, into descriptions that shapes whatever visionary experience they're they're having. And it's that shaping, it's that active involvement in communicating whatever that visionary experience is, is where also that authority comes from. So it's, so it's, it's not someone who's passively relaying information off the stone, but whatever information that stone may be endowing the person with, then they are taking an active role in how they shape that into language or action um, to create something that to make something happen. And right. so that's another aspect. So Joseph Smith and his charisma and his personality would definitely be participating in whatever that process was. Right, right. So if if we're following this um this trajectory of of Joseph Smith um his his youth it um this process I guess sort of begins with this uh mystical worldview and with a with the use of a seer stone. Um, but one thing you write about in the in the book as well is Joseph Smith as an exhorter, um, not not necessarily professionally, but maybe an exhorter in in training, and the and what that brought to the production of the Book of Mormon. So can can we talk about that either either their their history with with Methodism or just um, uh, his his involvement in revival uh, sermons and things of that nature? Sure. Um, so. We know from the things that Joseph Smith said that he was really um, quite taken with the Methodists. Um, In his 1832 history, he talks about how he was really concerned about the welfare of his soul. And so he got very serious about studying the Bible, but he also got really serious about um, looking into the other religions and then kind of double checking against the Bible, what they were teaching and uh, what they were saying. And so he's quite involved so in this process of looking around, in this process, and his family had had experience with Methodists, even clear back in Vermont, they weren't always positive. 
But um, he became partial, he said, to the Methodist sect. And then he also joined with a class meeting. And people who join a class meeting, it's kind of like a preparatory class for people. Um, you have roughly about a six-month time period after you join the class when you ultimately decide whether or not you're going to commit to the Methodist faith and join. Joseph didn't do that, but he had he would have had roughly, um, at the most, six months. And that's a lot of time to be yeah. attending a class meeting. And when you when you look at the the techniques of exhorting, um, and also preaching, those were tied into each other because people were who were becoming exhorters were essentially people who were preparing to become preachers and exhorters. Uh, were kind of a beginning stage of that, if someone were going on to become a preacher. Now the a, a caveat to that is that. Um, there was a lot of exhorter, exhorting going on among members of every social class at every level, male and female. So it, it, exhorting wasn't necessarily someone who wanted to become a preacher. But when someone started doing what was described uh, as exhorting and um, training to become it, which is what Joseph Smith was doing, then that's a little bit more formal. And the ways that people would learn exhorting, one way is, um, well, there was quality control going on, mm -hmm. right? People wouldn't immediately become preachers because you'd get people who had just joined the Methodist a class meeting, and they'd only been there, what, one or two months. So they don't really fully understand all the Methodist interpretations of doctrine, Right. So if you allow people to get up and just start preaching and say, I'm preaching by the spirit, then you get a lot of people who are preaching things that don't align with the Methodist way of interpretation. That sounds like a Mormon testimony meeting. That can go really awry. <laughs> it can. And that's is what would happen. So what would happen there is, um, so you had to kind of work your way up. You had to get experienced before you would become a preacher. But one of the ways that people would learn how to do that is uh, working in tandem with a preacher. So if you had a trained, experienced preacher, the preacher would get up and then they would um, offer the interpretation of a passage of scripture following the standard way of sermonizing. And then along with that, they would tell people how the scripture applied to their lives. They would also explain certain doctrinal points that people could take away from the scripture. And then the preacher would often then give people an exhortation about how they needed to apply this to their lives. Now, as soon as the preacher was done, the exhorter then would stand up and would repeat a lot of what the preacher said in his sermon. And so they had to be listening, of course, and they're not off on the side taking notes, but they're just listening to what the preacher's saying. They're listening to the main points or the main heads of what the, uh, the doctrines or uses would be of this particular scriptural passage. And then they would also, so they would exhort saying, you know, the preacher has said this, this is what we need to know. This is what you need to do. The preacher said that this is what we need to know. This is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And so it'd be an exhortation that basically followed what the preacher was saying. In addition to that, they would also learn very kind of generic patterns that you could apply to the end of virtually any sermon. And so that would be talking about just fundamental things about, you know, you need to listen to the word of the Lord. You need to read the scriptures. You need to awake from your 
uh, sinful state, you need to recognize your unworthiness before God, and you need to come to Christ. So wake up, come to Christ, come before him now, confess your sins, you know, redeem your soul. And so you could apply that to any um, sermon. And so those are the types of skills that would happen. So where there was a lot of listening, there was a, there would be, um, it's not really improvisation because there are certain patterns that people, you just learn from being around them. Um, it's the same way that if you're listening to testimony meetings over and over and over, uh, you, you start to recognize what's kind of acceptable, what's not acceptable, ways to express spiritual experiences that are appropriate, ways that are not appropriate. There's a lot of things that y- you just learn by participating in the culture. Right. The norms. Yeah. And then also when it comes to laying down heads, which is basically when someone creates a skeletal outline of a sermon before they preach it. And so in preparation, someone's trying to think, you know, what do I want to talk about Isaiah one, chapter one, what does this scripture say? What kind of doctrinal points do I want to pull out of the text? What types of lessons to learn? So they would just have this simple outline that they would create, but when they stood up to preach, they would, um, all of the words would be extemporaneous, yet they're following this guide, either by looking at a little piece of paper in their hand or else going from memory. That technique, and this is something I really want to stress because um, yeah. when I look at conversations, especially in social media or whatnot, about when I'm describing that experience that Joseph Smith would have had, um, some people make it sound like someone has to go into, you know, four years of college training in order to learn this technique. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's not the case at all. Um, this is the kind of technique that you could pull someone down who pull someone aside who wanted to be an exhorter or wanted to go on to become a preacher. And you could teach this technique to them in a matter of 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and um, and to give them all of the basic fundamentals that they would need to know. And from that point, they would just kind of have to start doing exhortations and, and practicing with it a little bit. And it's, it's not rocket science by any means. And um, when you look around at a lot of the preachers who made use of this uh, technique, I mean, a lot of people had um, less education or than Joseph Smith had, and yet they would be using this to do sermon after sermon after sermon um, in their own, uh, preaching careers. So, so it's, it's actually a very simple technique and, um, and it has some more details. Maybe we could go into that at some point. It's not just simply following a bullet point list, but there's, it, it follows a specific pattern, uh, of that day, which was called the doctrine and use pattern. And, um, so that's a, that's something that more detail, it's a little bit we could probably describe it. I usually do well when I give visuals, but I don't really have visuals, (laughs) but, um, but yeah. uh, So that's what Joseph Smith, that's how the Methodism could have informed him. And there's another thing too. It's true that we don't have a historical reference saying on um, September 4th of 1826, Joseph Smith was taught, the laying down of heads at the Methodist class meeting. Sure. 
But, you know, those types of historical references, they just, uh, by and large, that type of specificity just simply doesn't exist. And so when people say, look, there's no historical evidence of this happening, you know, that's not so much a historical argument. It's just a simple polemical argument. Um, It's someone making up a problem um, demanding a certain unreasonable amount of evidence. But this is what I would say. If there is someone training to be a Methodist exhorter or Methodist preacher, and especially if they've been in a class, a Methodist class setting for several months, there is no way that they would not have been exposed repeatedly time and time again to these techniques. And so, you know, that's why it's important in historical inquiry to really understand the historical context and what is happening in these places. Because there's no way that Joseph would not have been exposed to these techniques. That's, that's simply a polemical argument that really is, is not, it's just not good history. And I, and I guess your argument in your book is that <clears throat> these sorts of um, 19th century um, sermon culture techniques end up uh, demonstrating or, or showing up in, in the actual text of the, of yes. the Book of Mormon. Um, not only that, but you, you uh, seem to point to evidences that suggest they were employed in the, in the production um, and so yeah. that's that's kind of what I want to get into next. But um, okay. uh, before I forget, I, I did uh, I did ask for questions on on the wonderful uh, Reddit. So uh, and somebody oh, okay. had and somebody had a good question for you that I think sort of fits in here. Um, sure. And uh, so they they asked uh, they they said there was an obvious conscious decision on the part of Joseph Smith before beginning the creation or translation of the Book of Mormon to employ biblical style speak in its production. And so they asked um, if any of the other early burned over district preachers of his day were employing the same sort of oratory device, or if that's something that's uh, maybe unique to, to Joseph Smith. Um, and, and Colby Townsend and I kind of got into this a little bit too, this idea that there's you know, a biblical speak and, and that um, one would have been immersed in it at that time. So yeah. is this uh, something, I guess, it's just Joseph Smith or is this a, a preaching style? Okay, so regarding the use of a scriptural language and whether or not it was a conscious decision, I think it absolutely was a conscious decision. And part of the reason why you would want to uh, dictate a text in a biblical style language is because that in and of itself gives a form of authority to the text. You know, if he'd done it in kind of a down home uh, shoulder rubbing jargon of the local pub, um, (laughs) that would not have the same kind of authority if he's saying, look, this this is a new extra canonical text that um, is on par with the Bible, but if, you know, if it reads like, you know, some local yokels just, you, you know, it, it would not mm-hmm. fly and it, it would have received all kinds of mockery uh, for that. And so, th- so I do believe it was conscious. Now, the ability to do that, was that part of preaching? Now, the thing that, that, that's tough about this is a lot of these sermons, I mean, we had there were thousands and thousands of sermons delivered that were never recorded because it, they were the semi-extemporaneous style, right? So people had 
this little outline and then they would go off. But we do have, when people are talking about listening to a preacher, um, there were some preachers, and I think that they were in the minority, but there were some preachers who intentionally used what was called um, uh, Bible language. It's also called scripture language and some variations of that where some preachers were so deeply immersed in the biblical text that they would, uh, to add a little weight to the lessons that they were preaching about is that they would kind of switch into this pseudo biblical um, style in order to, to add some credibility to uh, the doctrinal points that they were preaching about. So it did happen. And, um, but I suspect, you know, I don't, because we can't go back and know precisely what every single preacher did. We don't have, you know, precise counts, but I don't see it coming up a lot. I see it a few times. So I suspect that the people who are preaching that way were few and far between. But that is also, that's something in terms of preaching. I think there would be a difference, though, when people did these kind of extemporaneous prayers. There was, I, uh, there were a lot of people who would go on these extended long prayers, as well as preaching, where there did seem, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, in the LDS faith now, you know, when people switch into delivering a prayer, they switch into this kind of pseudo old style. So you start hearing all the these and thous and hasts and, you know, it's the same type of thing. Um, but anyway, so yes. for you, it's more about uh, maybe the, uh, the authority and the antiquity of this is an ancient people and this is how they spoke kind of thing. Um, well, I don't know about so much about this is how they spoke as much mm -hmm. as in a translation you know, and he's presenting it as a translation, he's trying to give it the most elevated, sublime form of expression. Right, right. And even in common schools, um, they would start to learn about style and how, um, and this is funny because it was taught under the rubric of grammar of all things, but they would start to learn about different forms, styles of texts and delivery where they would learn that the Bible was supposed to be an elevated sublime form that, that was important for describing, you know, things of God. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I want to ask it, it seems to me that um, traditionally speaking, re referring to, to Joseph Smith as a, a gifted storyteller has been maybe perceived by uh, LDS faithful as, as a pejorative, but um, I think you, you make uh, the argument in your book um, when you write about Joseph Smith as a storyteller, it seems to be more of a compliment. Uh, would you agree with that? Um, do, do you see him, I guess, as a, as a talented storyteller and I guess to what extent does storytelling um, as a, as a cultural phenomenon play into the production of the book of Mormon? There's so much to say here. Um, when we look back at Joseph Smith's time and context, we are looking at cultural pathways and cultural ways of living that were on some ways so very different from what they are today. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, today you might see a family gather around and watch the television. A hundred years ago, you might see the family gather around a radio and listen to a radio. And when you go 200 years ago, that's when you would be in a situation where in the evening around the hearth, families would gather together and tell stories to one another. They would read to one another. They would do uh, school lessons with younger children. The, the oral culture was so very different from what it is today. And when we talk about Joseph being a gifted storyteller, he's in a whole culture of storytellers. Right. Um, everyone participated in that. And that was just the way things operated. Um, so to be honest, I think Joseph Smith being a good storyteller is not some kind of unique, unusual thing. I suspect that, you know, his father was supposed to be a good storyteller. I suspect that um, any of the children take turns, tell us a story. And so they could tell a story. Um, and that would have been just commonplace and not some unusual thing. So in the winter months, when you're not doing much of anything farming related and the days are short, the nights are long and you get the family together. And sometimes because you don't have a lot of money, so it's not like you can be burning candles all around the house. Usually if someone was lighting a candle, it'd be a single candle and then someone might be working using that light. So the light to read would be difficult. Um, and so a lot of times the family would kind of huddle around that fire and people would take turns telling stories. And that was one way of just family um, entertainment. And you're in these tiny little cabins. It's not like people go wandering off in their 4,000 foot square right. home. You know? For some privacy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wherever you went, you could still hear people talking anywhere in the house in, the, in these little kind of farming homes, pretty much. And so that was just something you did. Um, and if, and, and naturally there would be some people who could tell stories better than others. Um, and when you look at, you know, the, like if we, if we're looking at Joseph Smith playing a role in the shaping of the text of the Book of Mormon, then the Book of Mormon then can offer clues to Joseph Smith's ability to through this translation process or whatever visions he was receiving. And in the course of articulating what that was, he would have been able to draw on his experience of telling stories in the past in order to help shape a translation in such a way that it was more compelling and more interesting than someone who did not have those skills. And, um, but that I don't, you know, Joseph didn't have to be a genius to do that. He just had to be a participant in his culture. And that's a very common skill. That's a good point. Well, we, we've we've covered, um, I guess, the beginning. We've, we've talked about seer stones and, and sort of the, the magical worldview of the time, the, the sermon culture and things of that nature. Should we segue into the actual production process and, and um, what we know and what you document about um, 
his his preparation and and uh, maybe the mechanics of of how the Book of Mormon was produced. Can you talk about that? Sure. There's two types of evidence that we have to look at, and often when we're dealing with historians, we're dealing with what would be called external evidence. And external evidence would be what are all the times in the historic record where someone makes mention of an event or an occurrence. So with the Book of Mormon, when are the times that we have something in the history that's documented describing this process? And there's not much. There's not much at all there. It's But it's not absent either. So when we look at um, the evidence from the external point of view, then we have times like uh, Lucy Mack Smith when she's saying that Joseph Smith, um, after the angel Moroni visited him, that the angel apparently came back and visited him several times. And Joseph Smith, over several nights repeatedly, would come and tell the family these wonderful stories uh, about the ancient you know, inhabitants of the Americas. And so that is evidence of Joseph being informed by Moroni about things in the past, having visions, some type of visionary experience, because he apparently was so fluent and so lucid about that, that Lucy said that, you know, it seemed like he had been living among them. He was so detailed and so amazing. So that's, that does give us evidence of the ideas of how the the ancient Native Americans lived um, was on Joseph Smith's mind from the very beginning in 1823. The other thing that's more specific to the Book of Mormon is that when we later look at his description of what took place with the angel Moroni, either what he said himself or what he said to people and what people said about it, is that he's describing the angel Moroni giving him basically the whole outline of the Book of Mormon, that there was an ancient group of people, that they um, were righteous, but then fell into decline and then were destroyed. And uh, in some of the, uh, the, when you go through and look at all of the accounts that describe when Joseph Smith was referring to those, uh, that visit and visits by the angel Moroni, that there was a lot of information given about, you know, the, the economy, the politics, the government of the people. And so it's quite a comprehensive view of what was going on in this, this world of the Book of Mormon. So Joseph Smith, so those are things that are evidence, external evidences that let us know that even though we don't have him, uh, we don't have a historical note saying, oh, I saw Joseph Smith sitting down and starting to write the outline of a story, right? which, which we wouldn't expect to have anyway. Um, we, there are things that people have said that Joseph Smith himself included that let us know that there was a sense of the overall shape of the Book of Mormon from the very beginning in 1823. Mm-hmm. How much detail had been worked out yet? Don't know. Who knows? Um, I suspect that in 1823, when he announced it, it was not entirely formulated in detail, but that 
but the the overall shape of the text was already present at that time. And that's several years out from the yeah. um, from from the actual publication, right? And so, what I argue in the book is that I think that from and I'm going to look at this from Joseph Smith's point of view is that you know he's had these spiritual experiences, he's been told about this ancient group of people. So that's obviously going to be on his mind. He's obviously going to be asking questions about that. And then guess what? He's got a seer stone that tells him everything about the past, the present, and the future. He has a seer stone already available to tap into that. He can already access that even without the text. He can just look in the seer stone and start to to just through that process of gaining information, try to understand and divine out through the seer stone what those stories were as part of this translation process. So uh, so that's what I uh, am proposing here is that all these years out that he started to think about the stories and that he started to look for spiritual confirmation as to whether or not these stories that he's envisioning were actually true historical stories. And that that would have included just writing out an outline and then, uh, and then making sure that he had spiritual confirmation that such outlines were true and that he could collect these outlines together in preparation then for translating the gold plates once he received them, but yet being able to already be prepared in the sense of knowing what those um, stories were going to be. Well, we, we talked, we talked um, just a moment earlier about uh, sermon culture and, and uh, you mentioned laying down heads, uh, mnemonic cues and, and other uh, devices used by um, 19th century uh, orators. Um, and, and one of the, one of the most uh, compelling aspects of your book, I think for a lot of people is, uh, chapter five, you talk about sermon culture in the book of Mormon, sort of showing, Mm -hmm. um, these parallels where actually the, the, the devices that they're using in the burned over district, uh, that preachers are using actually end up in, in the text. Can, can you talk about that? Cause I, I think that that's, uh, one of the things that intrigues people the most. Okay, and then just to link into what I said before, um, those historical references are external. And so what's internal evidence? And internal right. evidence is when we go right into the text itself and find out what the text is telling us. Okay, and then first, one way to just kind of start this out, um, and let me see if I can find this. Yeah. Uh, because when, when we want to think about or um, theorize about what process was being used, um, and this is a really important point that I think gets overlooked, and that is we don't actually have to create a theory behind how the text was put together or how sermons took place, because the Book of Mormon explicitly tells us how that was done, okay? And and this is going back to um, clear the beginning of the book with Nephi and Jacob. And Jacob in particular uh, 
he refers directly and explicitly to this technique of composition. And it's in Jacob chapter one and verses two and four. And let me just grab that real quick. Um, yeah, and I'll please. just read that. So uh, Jacob is about to, he's going to give, you know, a sermon to the people. And, but he was also getting advice from Nephi, his older brother saying, look, you know, if there's anything that's important, you know, if there's sermons or prophecies or things that are important for the posterity and to be recorded, then this is how you do it. And so in uh, Jacob 1, 2, he says, uh, Jacob's talking, and he says, and, and he, or Nephi, gave me, Jacob, a commandment that I should write upon these plates a few of the things which I considered to be most precious. And then skipping up to verse 4, and if there were preaching, which was sacred, or revelation, which was great, or prophesying, that I should engraven the heads of them upon these plates and touch upon them as much as it were possible for Christ's sake and for the sake of our people. So I'm going to go right there where he says that I should engraven the heads of them or the heads of these sermons or revelations or prophecies, and then touch upon them as much as possible. Now, heads, what that means, engraven the heads of them, heads is kind of the same thing as saying the main points of the sermon or the main points of a prophecy. And so what you do is you record the main heads, which is essentially the outline. And then when he says to touch upon them means that's when you expand upon each of the heads to kind of reproduce the full sermon. So in other words, and, and this, this also, by the way, was a common practice. When laying down heads has a lot of different meanings and the, and, and not just the preachers, but even audience members would lay down heads. And what would happen is, um, so an audience member is listening to a sermon and the preacher is identifying either explicitly or just in the context of the sermon, what the main points are. And so people taking notes I, or trying to listen and memorize a sermon or even to um, write down a sermon in their auditor notes uh, would kind of fill in these slots. These are the main points. And then, so they'd listen for that main head and then they would try to uh, make notes on how that head was elaborated. Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly what's going on here. And this is, this is, um, it's explicit. We're being told <laughs> what this process is in the text. In the text. So the book, we don't have to theorize about how the Book of Mormon sermons and prophecies and revelations were structured because we're told explicitly by Jacob and Nephi how that was done. And that process is the process that people were using in the 19th century. And we can get more specific because this isn't simply writing down bullet points. And that's where there's also been some confusion. It's not just writing down, here's the text, point one, point two, point three, the end. When the preachers did these sermons, there were constraints about what you included in these heads. And we could go into more detail about that, but it's a pattern yeah. called the doctrine and use pattern. And so when we talk, when Jacob's talking about engraving the heads and touch upon them as much as possible, um, he's describing a very distinct 
process that people in early 19th century America would have immediately recognized because not only did they have preachers who were engaging in that practice, but a lot of them, they themselves were doing it too. I'll give you one another example before we move on. Yeah. Sunday schools. Um, it was really common for kids who were attending Sunday school. And we, and we know also that Joseph Smith did for a certain period of time attend a Sunday school because one of his neighborhood kids talked about how he went to Joseph to Sunday school when they were kids. In Sunday, in order to participate in Sunday school, you also had to attend some kind of church. That was a requirement. And at the time, it, it's very likely that Joseph was probably, he did not join the Presbyterian church with his mother and um, some of his siblings, but he would have been required to attend a church at the same time that he was attending Sunday school. So he, even, even though he wasn't a member, he may well have then attended with his family at the Presbyterian church, or he could have gone to some other, uh, visited some other church to fulfill that requirement. Now, one of the things that Sunday school teachers would often do to ensure that a child had attended services, and not just that they attended, but that they had listened to the sermon, is they would quiz them on the heads of the sermon. So in other words, they'd say, oh, so you listen to preacher so-and-so. Okay, what, is, what was his text? In other words, what was the scripture he preached on? And what were the main heads? So then they'd have to recite back what the main points of the sermon were. And that was a way of ensuring that they were listening to what they were, um, what the preacher was saying. So this was really common. It was happening. It wasn't just something that preachers did, you know, in the construction of their sermons, it was very much part of the culture on understanding and listening and comprehending sermons as well. So I'm going to segue from there over to these patterns. Yeah. Does that work? Okay. And what is the doctrine and use pattern? It's a, it's a pattern that um, we'll go into the history of a minute, but basically what happened is um, in the doctrine and use pattern, you would start out with a text. And normally what would happen is they... Um, it usually was a scripture, although it could be uh, a proposition, mm -hmm. it could be a particular uh, premise, it could be a certain argument, but inevitably it was um, a scripture. Okay, so when we're talking about the patterns that uh, the preachers would use, and of course, everybody had their own kind of idiosyncratic variation on this pattern, but they all fall within to a certain group that is described as the doctrine and use pattern. And the doctrine and use pattern is a type of pattern that um, was extremely common at the time. It was pretty much, you know, in many ways, it was pretty much basically in one form or another, the only type of sermonizing that was going on in terms of sermon patterns. In, in that day, I mean, whether they were really simple or if they were highly complex, um, they still kind of all followed, they all, they all had the same history. Now, just to kind of, before we get into how this worked in the Book of Mormon, we just kind of push our way back a little bit. Um, there's one person who talked about this explicitly, um, who was 
uh, a preacher, and uh, I, I, I usually call them by just their <laughs> their last names, but uh, William Perkins. And right. William Perkins, uh, you know, he had written about this. And, and the reason why I bring him up is because um, he was so well known uh, for his works on preaching. And he uh, described the doctrine and use pattern in a way that he described as being the only imperfect way to preach a sermon. <laughs> and he broke it up. It, it's a lot of times you'll see it described as the three part or four part sermon pattern. Sometimes it's called a Puritan pattern, but it's actually beyond more, more groups beyond the Puritans use this because it was such an easy kind of default way to pattern. But what you did is you start out and, um, and this is the way that Perkins described it. He said, um, if you're going to preach the doctrine and use pattern, here are the four things you need to do. Step one, you need to read the text distinctly out of the canonical scriptures. And so he's talking about a text that is just a scriptural passage. So if you wanted to touch on a certain doctrine about, you know, whatever the issue was, then you would find the scripture that deals with that doctrine and then you would focus on that scripture. So the first thing you do is you announce to an audience, you know, this is our text. In other words, this is the scripture. The next step is to give the, and this is Perkins, his step number two is to give the sense and understanding of it being read by the scripture itself. So what he's trying to say here is, so you want to explain to people what this scripture is saying within its own context. We're not going to reach out to other scriptures yet to elaborate on interpreting it. We just want to say, here's the scripture. We're going to read it so that everybody understands what it is. And we're reading it within the context in which it was given. Step number three, to collect a few and profitable points of doctrine out of the natural sense. So what he's basically saying there is once you've identified your scripture, once you've given a proper introduction and context for it, then you identify the doctrines that naturally come out of that text. And these are the, this is part of the doctrine and use pattern. Okay, this is the doctrine part of it. So we've identified the text, we've given the context and introduction. Now we identify doctrines that this text teaches us. And finally, he says to apply, if he, the preacher, have the gift, the doctrines rightly collected to the life and manners of men in a simple and plain speech. Okay. So there's a lot going on with that one. So, but the first one, when we say doctrine and uses, the uses means how do we use the doctrines? In other words, how do we apply the doctrines? Right. And, and this is when you turn around to the audience and say, okay, we've learned these things. Now these apply to you. And, and even though this scripture might be talking about, you know, ancient Israelites, or it might be talking about early Christians, it still applies to you. And that, that kind of is a way of piggybacking on this idea of typology, you know, where there's a scriptural text that, you know, talks about the Exodus and listening to the word of God to, to, to get out of Egypt. For typological interpretations, in terms of finding doctrines and applying them to an audience, they'd say, so that you would say, now through this example, we know that when God speaks to us, we need to listen. And if he tells us, leave this 
place of sin, then we leave the place of sin, either literally or metaphorically. So that's what this application process is. And then also when he, and he, he says this at the end, we might miss it. He says, in a simple and plain speech. So this is an also, this is also part of the origins of this speech pattern. Uh, when you talked about the doctrine and uses pattern, this was a pattern that was derived in such a way that the people who were the academics, it goes back to uh, late medieval scholasticism. This is when this oh, wow. form originated. And what was happening is you'd have all these really intelligent, smart um, ministers and clergymen uh, who would get up and start preaching to just common lay people. And sometimes the whole sermon would be in Latin. Nobody could understand it, or else there would be a lot of you know, references to scripture where it'd be quoted in Latin and the common person just wasn't learning anything. And so the part of the, the history of the doctrine and use or the, it, what they called it was the sermo modernus, which at that, it means modern sermon, which when they formulate it was modern for them. Um, and it was a way of reaching out to the masses of breaking out of all of the the academic language and being able to preach to the common person. That was one form of it. I mean, they, but they would still do it also in the universities because you would, they still continue to use this kind of doctrine and use format um, it, because it just, it really um, dovetailed well into forms of classical rhetoric where, where you would kind of take a text, take a scripture, and then you pull it apart and analyze each portion of it. And so they'd also continue to use that in their own, kind of, you know, highfalutin Latin language. But that's the origin of it. So the doctrine and use pattern, and I'm going to read from my book here. This is uh, for people who are interested. This is on page 64. So in general, the basic four-part sermon pattern, which is also three-part, consisted of a text, which was usually but not exclusively a passage of scripture. Other texts might appear as a proposition, a doctrine, or principle of the gospel a theological claim or argument, or simply the main subject of the discourse. Next, the sermon contained an introduction, which usually served as an expository preamble, offering important contextual information for the audience, context about the scripture, context about um, why this was appearing uh, in the work at the time or the doctrine, co doctrinal context. Um, sorry, I just kind of went off script there. Offering, okay. uh, but it was all for the audience to understand the purpose of the sermon and the preacher's line of reasoning and why he was using the text and for what purpose. Introductions might also include additional elements as invocations. Oh, may God help me that I may say this correctly. Various appeals to an audience for their support and prayers. Please pray for me as I try to explain this to you. An optional announcement of the main heads of a discourse. Um, and at this time, they might explicitly lay down the heads here so or they may not but what they would do at this introduction is say now we have this scripture this is what we're talking about so i'm going to tell you about four main points related so if uh, we're going to talk about how this scripture teaches us about christ how this scripture then teaches us to follow christ's example then how christ paid for our sin you know it would be they would explicitly announce that to an audience 
or they would not announce that to the audience, but that's, they would keep it to themselves. But in, but in terms of laying down heads, that's how this relates to the doctrine and use pattern. So next came what might be best described as the doctrines and proofs section, which involved any number of categories and strategies of uh, rhetorical invention that served to elaborate or to expound upon the subject. So if we have a doctrine, this is where we'd elaborate on the doctrine. This is where we'd pull in you know, proofs to prove the doctrine. Some of the most common elements of this section included proofs, arguments, inferences, connections, confirmations, new points of doctrine that are related, and reasons. Now, once that was finished, then you'd come to the end or the conclusion. And the conclusion had its collection of elements. And so apart from uh, you'd reiterate and reinforce the central messages, but it also came, contained usually the applications and uses. And so this might be where the preacher would say, okay, we've learned all this. Now this is how you have to go live it in your life. Now, one thing about this, when we're talking about this pattern, there was a lot of flexibility with it. So with a lot of people, like the doctrines and uses, for example, they might tell you how this doctrine applied to a person at every step along the way in a sermon. So a preacher might start out a sermon and say, we're going to talk about this scripture, and then I'm going to tell you how it applies to you. So you might get it right at the get-go. And then, or after each point or doctrine, you know, we learn doctrine number one here. This is how it applies to you. We learn doctrine number two here. This is how it applies to you. And so people need to know that this was flex. It's not a rigid step one, step two, step three, step four. And at that end, with the applications and uses, that you would also have a lot of exhortations. Here are all the things we learned. Now you better go do it. You better wake up from your sin or you're going to go to hell. You got to <laughs> right. take care. And then so it would kind of summarize. And so uh, this was a very specific it wasn't just bullet points. It was following the constraints um, that we had in these certain types of, you would, you would go to certain specific topics, certain specific applications. And, um, and, and those were um, characteristic of this style of preaching. So when we look at the Book of Mormon and we say, okay, we have this sermon style. We have this sermon pattern. We know its history. We know that the earliest formulations of this type of sermon pattern began in late among the late medieval scholastics, and it, it had all kinds of variations and developments. But then when this finally makes its way into the evangelical preaching, and not just them, it was it, people who were kind of from the uh, both uh, among the Methodists, the Presbyterians, mm -hmm. the Baptists, where they're going out and they're preaching and getting converts. This, this style had formulated, you know, it's not the complex learned style that students would be learning at Harvard or Yale, where they might be going off into even more elaborate um, samples of classical rhetoric, which actually had more steps and stages. But even then, all of the formally trained and informally trained would generally tend to fall back into this easy three and four part strategy 
um, because it just made it easier for audiences to hear, but it also made it easier to, for preachers to, to memorize and just follow this in their minds. Now, the, but the point we're getting to here is this style of preaching has a known history. It began in the late, among the late medieval scholastics. And it's this same pattern that reoccurs again and again and again throughout the Book of Mormon. So what does that tell us? What, how do we think about that? Now, what I'm encouraging people to think about is how this gives evidence that Joseph Smith was participating in the construction and shaping of the translation. And I'm giving, I'm not going to tell people what they have to think. I mean, I know for people who don't believe the Book of Mormon is an authentic text for them, they might say, oh, this is evidence that um, because the ancient Nephite prophets would not have been following this pattern. And that's true. They would not have been following that pattern. But you can also look at it from the viewpoint, if Joseph Smith is an active translator, if he's participating in the articulation of the text, if this is not a tight control, but loose control, and Joseph Smith really translated just like he said he translated, then this would be evidence of how Joseph Smith, through whatever inspirational or divine process of what he received when he tried to articulate what he was seeing visually or imagery or, or um, whatever inspiration was coming that he had to articulate it. And he articulated it through his experience and understanding of how sermons were done. And, uh, and so that's what, that's what, to come around to another question. This is one of the reasons why um, I think tight control is not a good explanation for how Joseph Smith was involved in the production of the Book of Mormon, because um, if so, then we have to explain why a thousand years of Nephite prophets uh, knew about a form of preaching that wouldn't appear for centuries and centuries and centuries on the other side of the world. And and I realize that there are people who will say that, well, well, they're prophets, so they could, you know, see into the future and see that, you know, I don't buy that. And we could go into more detail about it, but there's a point when I think it's important that (sighs) we have to be careful. I think that when, look, if, if our beliefs, right, if a person's testimony is going to be strong, then I think that person's testimony should be grounded in the best possible information and to try and get the most accurate information. And I think people should, I wish people would stop sometimes when they're trying to make things work for themselves to recognize when they're starting to engage in mental gymnastics to make something work to try to reconcile information with their earlier opinions. Um, Because sometimes people, I I think some people have treated me as like some secularist (laughs) attacking non-believer. Yeah. When, when in fact, what's going on, the real problem 
that I've seen with what people are saying is the issue that we're talking about is not a doctrinal issue. It's not doctrine. What we're talking about are people's perceptions and people's understandings, people's traditions that are being challenged by new information. And so I guess you say if anything is under attack, it's somebody's personal opinion of how they think the translation happened, and they don't want that opinion changed. And so they might couch it as an attack on the church. They might say, oh, I'm defending the faith. But in fact, they're not defending the faith. They're defending their cherished opinions about how that translation worked. And I think I think it's valuable if people, I know it's sensitive. I know it's hard to change paradigms, that it's hard to do the mental work of remodeling. But um, there is more evidence to support that Joseph Smith participated in this process by far than, than the theory of tight control, where Joseph was a passive um, person who just simply dictated what he saw on a text. Anyway, so I'll get off the soapbox there on that. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think, um, I mean, we, we see, we see this pattern, right. Um, it, it, it crops up in, in other instances. I mean, when, when new DNA research, um, you know, indicates a, a different, um, historical perspective on who, uh, Lamanites are and where they come from, you see, uh, you see the church and the narratives adapt, um, somewhat yeah. to, to that. And, and, I, and I don't see this as any different. Um, yeah. I, I think it probably gets messy when it comes to, um, how things are portrayed. Cause I, cause I read things and, and uh, that make me wonder if Joseph Smith himself, um, wanted to portray a tight translation. It's so hard to tell, you know, when, when it comes yeah. to things like that, but I, I look at instances like the, the missing 116 pages and uh, things of that nature that sort of seem to indicate that he himself is, is uh, conveying a tight control method. Um, and then squaring that with scholarship that indicates that it was, it had to have been loose, right? You know, that, that's yeah. where it gets tricky. Well, uh, you know, just for an example, you mentioned the, the lost pages. Yeah. I mean, if we were looking at a process where Joseph Smith had prepared some narrative outlines and, and through his process of translation and through inspiration, all he would have had were those outlines, right? right? And so, and so, when it came to the dictation, the dicta—that's part of this semi-extemporaneous production. Semi-extemporaneous meaning that part of it was prepared in advance, mm-hmm. but part of it was in the moment of performance. So the actual sentences, the actual language, would would have been something using that method that he would. Um, would not have been able to reproduce unless he had photographic memory. Right. And so he's faced with a situation where he would be able to reproduce the text, but the text is going to have different wording. And people are going to jump on that because they don't understand the process he's following. So he's in, he's in a real jam there. And um, because if, if he dictates it all again, uh, it's unlikely he would dictate word for word the entire text of the hundred, I bet he could come close in some ways, because if you're that familiar and then you're also dealing with this certain type of um, language that this register of Bible speak, I mean, you, you, you do fall into certain patterns, but he, I, I doubt he could have reproduced it. 
and um, to be verbatim. And so that was a problem. But so, so whether it was tight or loose control uh, wouldn't necessarily be an issue there in terms yeah. of, it, it doesn't really give us a clue as to whether the process was tight control or loose control. Before we move on, um, are there any other aspects of, of like sermon culture, elements of sermon culture that, that are showing up in the Book of Mormon that you think are uh, valuable or important to make mention of, or, or do you feel like we've covered it? Well, um, I, I could reiterate a couple of points that I've, I think are important to know. I mean, there was sure. one section where... <sighs> You know, how, another. This is another thing that I think can be better understood as Joseph Smith participating in the process, and that is mm-hmm. when we look at the text of the Book of Mormon, and when we start going into the sermons across the board across this thousand-year period. It's not just that we have sermons that are falling into these patterns, but a lot of the sermons are falling into the same type of doctrinal repetitions. And and what those are, for example, um, early young preachers, you know, they were always told. I mean, when you're looking at systematic theology, you have you would have to spend years and years reading through very long books to understand all of the doctrines you needed to know to be the perfect preacher. And new young preachers could be overwhelmed. By that, and so a lot of the advice that was given to them um, when they were young and starting out, um, especially with the Methodists uh, and Presbyterians and Baptists, because you're dealing with people who don't have much of an education anyway, who are becoming preachers. So what you say, well, what do we talk about? Mm-hmm. And say, well, forget all of the elaborate, convoluted, difficult passages, and just preach about Jesus Christ. That's really all you need to preach about and why Jesus Christ is important. Well, why is he important? Because he died for our sins. Well, why did he have to die for our sins? Because none of us are perfect. Well, why aren't we perfect? Well, ever since the fall. And so pretty soon you build this narrative. And that's what they were taught also is to have a narrative. And that is when you're talking about Christ and the importance of Christ, and you're trying to bring people to Christ, one of the patterns you'll see among the early preachers is this type of easily remembered narrative. When we talk about mnemonic devices, this is something that's easy to remember is you say, okay, how does this whole process work? Well, God created Adam and Eve, the garden of Eden. Then they sinned. Then there was the fall. Then people could not get back to heavenly father. So Christ then had to come and Christ paid for our sins. But it only works if you become his follower and take his name upon you. And then you can, um, and then that way mercy can grab hold of you where justice would have thrust you down to hell. So all of you who are listening, you need to get your act together. You need to embrace Christ so that you can wake up from your sins and be brought back to him. Now, what I just did right there is completely off the cuff. I've never practiced that. I've never tried to uh, prepare myself for that. So it's, it, it's an easy narrative sequence. That's what exhorters would do. That's what preachers would also do. And that's the same kind of basic doctrinal 
sermon that appears again and again and again and again throughout the Book of Mormon. So one thing I would say in terms of understanding Joseph's participation, you have to say we're also dealing with a man who was, what, 23 years old, 22 and 23, when he was involved in the dictation of the Book of Mormon, is that whatever promptings and inspirations that he was receiving, he would also have the limitations of his own experience and his own knowledge. And I think that shows when you start looking a lot of these doctrinal passages that are the same types of patches. Uh, passages, the same types of topics, and the same expressions of those topics that you see among early career preachers. And um, and there's actually a surprising amount of uniformity across this whole thousand-year period among the prophets. And so, um, and so when we think about when we think about the production of the Book of Mormon, we also think about the length of the Book of Mormon at just under two hundred seventy thousand words. That a lot of that is filled with sermons. A lot of that is filled with prophesying. A lot of that is filled with commentary. And that, you know, expands out the book quite a bit, um, even though the narrative itself, and what I mean by that is the plot points, the actual events and actions taking place is, is actually more constrained. But, but you can take any text and just go on one of these semi-extemporaneous um, sermons and you can expand a text without any preparation, by the way. When you're dealing with those generic topics, um, you, you can walk into it without having an outline at all with some of these core um, doctrinal modules and and you can just go off and fill up page after page after page of dictation. And sometimes that happens in the Book of Mormon as well. So you're dealing with a text where um, a lot of the text has been is is a, are sermons that uh, were are dealing specifically with an oral oral production as a way of expansion. So those are some things to also I think are important to think about and pay attention to. So from from your perspective then. Um, it, uh-huh. it, it's entirely plausible that that um, someone of of Joseph Smith's experience and his background and um, his education level is able to um, sort of do an, an, this oral performance of a text of the size and the uh, you know complexity, whatever it is, uh, of a of a work like the Book of Mormon. Is is that right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I, I, yes. And, and I, the reason why I say that when you go through and you look at the Book of Mormon, um, I think that it was, um, now, again, we're talking about on the possibility of whether or not a person could do it. Right. Right. So, so I, I want, I, I want listeners to be aware that I'm, I'm, I'm not telling people that no Joseph composed this uh, to heck with your faith. That's not <laughs> what I'm saying right here. What what I'm I'm not. What we're talking about is what is it possible for a human being in Joseph Smith's situation to produce? Would it be possible for him? Now I'm not saying that there weren't gold plates. I'm not saying that there was mm-hmm. an inspiration. I'm not saying that it's not true. What I am saying is when it comes to the human being's capacity and abilities, 
could someone in Joseph Smith with his background, limited education, and what we know about participation in juvenile debate society and as a Methodist exhorter in spotty common school education, could someone like that have produced a work like the Book of Mormon using the method of a simple common method he could have learned in an afternoon of laying down heads and preparing those heads, and then finally uh, doing dictating uh, with these outlines in mind, dictating extemporaneously the words. Could he? Could someone like that have done this and created the Book of Mormon? Yes, absolutely yes. And and I'm concerned about some of the apologetics that try to make this all a difficult, convoluted thing yeah. when it's really not. It's not rocket science. Um, it's really quite simple. The, the mechanics of it are quite simple. And um, so when, and that's why uh, I, I wrote an essay on naturalistic criteria. When people put together these long lists of all the reasons why it's impossible for Joseph Smith to have done this, um, I criticized that process because people feel like it's supporting and building faith or at least reinforcing faith. But the criteria turns out to be really um, idiosyncratic, um, non-empirical, uh, based on assumptions and presumptions. And, and so what happens is when those things are shown to be wrong, then someone starts out trying to support faith. And in fact, they've actually undermined faith. Right. And, and those lists are, when you take a close look at them, the, they contain so much information that is, it's, I mean, I don't want to be too hard on people who love these lists, but they're often filled with information that is um, not very good and <laughs> misleading. <put> mildly. <laughs> and yeah. And, and in the end, they, their, their hearts and intentions might be in a good place, but they wind up creating arguments that can be exploded quite easily. Mm-hmm. And, and then what about the people who relied on that list to help them if they were struggling? Well, then that implodes a bridge under their feet as well. I just don't think it's smart. I think it's, I think it's a bad idea. I think if, if people want to support the Book of Mormon, uh, the way to do it is the way the Book of Mormon said to do it, and that's to pray about it and, and get those feelings and then operate on faith. These appeals to naturalistic criteria, it, it reveals a certain insecurity about faith. It, it, it reveals um, uncertainty about faith, and it also interjects sand into a foundation that where you don't want sand. It's a bad idea, but, you know, I, I know that they're popular and they appeal to people, but ultimately it's, it's, it, it, it does more damage than it does good in my opinion. Well, it, it's, it, it's just a matter of, I don't even look at it, I guess, as a matter of, you know, oh, you've got things that destroy faith and you've got things that build faith. And it's, it's this mm-hmm. binary. I think it's just a matter of tightening up our 
uh, or arguments. Like you said, you don't want you don't want anyone's faith to be built on a on shoddy you know arguments or bad empirical yeah. evidence or whatever. So I mean, we we've all we've all sat through you know general conference talks where you know the the argument is made that. Joseph Smith wouldn't, he couldn't be capable of this. He had no education. He was, you know, ignorant farm boy. And that's just, you know, one example of, um, that the types of apologetics that you're talking about and, and yeah. why they, they ultimately, you know, doing more, end up doing more harm than good. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think in terms of Joseph Smith, I'm uh, one thing that I kind of fell into almost by accident, uh, because I wasn't ever really interested in the history of his education. But then when I was yeah. putting together uh, my dissertation, I kind of went down this rabbit hole of, of saying, you know, I wonder, we, there are so many references to Joseph being in school and not just in one place, but we have references to him being in school in Vermont. There are references to him being in school uh, where at, at almost every step along the way, Palmyra, Manchester, and then, uh, Kenan, uh, not Canandaigua, but uh, Shenango County, um, when he went to work at the St- Stowell Farm, th- there's it, several times. So he's had this, even if it's been limited, he's been exposed repeatedly throughout his youth to school. And so when I, and then I said, you know, this, what is happening? And, and it becomes really clear and this is where I think apologetics starts to stumble over itself. It has good atten- good intentions, but problems is, and where it actually hurts the faith is that it gives a distorted vision of Joseph Smith's youth and growing up. I think if the reason why people want to discount his education is because they think, oh, the, the more education he has, then that undermines the Book of Mormon. Right, no, it right. doesn't. No, it doesn't. We just, they don't, in, in the common schools, they don't teach a kid how to compose a 500-word book that talks <laughs> about some, you know, that's it's ludicrous. And so what's happening, though, is people don't approach history with an impartial view. And so when they look at the evidence you can't just look at a certain statement, but then you have to expand and look at what's the cultural context taking place here. Joseph Smith was supposed to be in school in Palmyra. Well, what was being taught in Palmyra at that time? And the default position we're looking at then is the types of things, the types of texts, the types of works that were going on in Palmyra, in Manchester, and also over in Shenango County. Those are the default positions for the types of things that Joseph Smith would have been learning if he were in a classroom. But what people are demanding is saying, if we don't have a historical reference saying, Joseph Smith studied from, I studied from such and such a text and such and such a text. If we don't have that kind of evidence, then they say, there's no evidence for this at all. Throw mm-hmm. it out. And, and what they're doing is a huge disservice to Mormonism. It's a huge disservice because what's happening then is we're obscuring parts of Joseph's life or we're not willing to look closer at Joseph Smith's life because we have an agenda 
to make him as illiterate as possible in order to make the Book of Mormon look all the more miraculous. So it's not about discovering the truth of what happened in history. It's about protecting a traditional viewpoint. And it's not protecting doctrine. This isn't doctrine. This is, this is a viewpoint that Joseph Smith was too dumb to do this. So we're going to do everything we can to make him as illiterate as possible. So we're going to refuse to acknowledge historical inquiry. And when there, when there are places where we don't have a direct quote from somebody about Joseph Smith's education, then we're going to insist that Joseph didn't go to school during that gap or didn't learn anything during that gap. And it's frustrating. I mean, there's a, there, <laughs> do I sound a little frustrated? <laughs> it's like one thing, one thing that you'll, uh, and you go back, this has gone back a long time. Yeah. Um, where people have said that Joseph Smith had the equivalent of a third grade education. And, and I went tracing that back to find out, you know, and I, I don't remember offhand the earliest version I found of mm-hmm. it, but it's, it's many, many, many decades old. And because I wanted to see what was the evidence behind that claim. And all I could, all, I, there, was no, there was nothing. And so I can only assume what people were going for. When you look, if you take all the historical references to when Joseph Smith was attending school somewhere, and you only count the times that are referred to and ignore all the other times, and assume that he never went to school unless somebody said he did, then you would get up to somewhere that's about two and a half to three years. And mm-hmm. so it looks like what someone's done is they only count it when there's an explicit reference to school. I mean, think about it. Do you think that if, you know, like for you, Nick, do you think that um, if you went through like your friend's journals or something that everyone would say, or, or, or people who didn't know you well, they'd always say, okay, this year, Nick went to school in the second grade and here's what Nick studied. <laughs> and uh, oh, and Nick, we were in third grade together and here's all the things that we studied. And, and Nick started school uh, with me and he ended school. You know, th- right. there's a demand for a certain type of historical documentation that is just unreasonable beyond belief. And, and it reveals a double standard uh, that often happens in apologetic argumentation because you know you'll have people demanding these really specific, unreasonable amounts of evidence. But then you know you you have to stop and say if we're supporting belief, you know, go back and look at the Book of Mormon. How much direct evidence do we have that this ancient civilization actually existed in the New World? Yeah, yeah. I mean, from an academic point of view, there's nothing, and so. It's you have a lot of apologetic argumentation where you know they're choking on a gnat and yet they're swallowing a whole pod of blue whales on the other hand, and it's just it's a little frustrating. Now, coming back to this third grade education, then mm-hmm. that I'm just going to say flat out that is false information. That right. is false information for several reasons. 
One, that those years of study are happening along a continuum from Joseph Smith's youth when he would have been about four years old when he actually started school for the very first time to learn his letters up until he was, what, about 20 years old when he's in Shenango County. So he's hitting this all along the way. But the other thing that people have a problem understanding of the difference between now and then is that at that time, people were involved in domestic education, parents and mothers especially were um, essentially um, culturally, it was an imperative that they were also involved in the education of their children. The other thing that was happening is if you had older siblings, those older siblings as a cultural practice were essentially required to be teaching their younger siblings um, uh, the lessons that they should be learning in school. So anytime Joseph Smith we don't have a documentation. Even if he were not in school, he still would have been receiving education. Right. So like the year when he was injured and because of his leg and he had to sit out um, and Lucy said, you know, after a year, everybody was up and happy again. So even if he were on crutches for several years afterwards, he wasn't bedridden for several years. Um even if he could not have attended school at that time, his education wouldn't have come screeching to a halt. The family would have been involved in making up in, in making up for what he was missing out on by sitting in the classroom. That is just the because they were doing it anyway. In the evenings around the even children who were not missing school and attending school, you get to the evening fireside and they would around the house and they would still be checking. What were your lessons today? Um, here's some reading. You know, even family scripture study, which the Smiths did, um, then, you know, and having people take turns reading. And so Joseph Smith wouldn't have been receiving education all along the way, but because we don't understand that culture so much today, we often think then in kind of modern terms and we project that onto the past. And it's a term they call presentism. And yeah. it's, it's where you take what's in the present and you assume that the past operated the same way as it does today, even though it doesn't. In the past, at this time, they had a really strong culture of domestic education and also self-improvement. So people were always going out and trying to read what they could. You visit a bookstore, you, you scan through some of the books and read them. We have a bookstore owner describing how Joseph Smith came in and he would read, and this is his word comprehensively. Hmm. And then he would, he also, he would criticize Joseph Smith for reading dime novels. It's not, this is Pomeroy Tucker, I believe, (laughs) but he also said that Joseph Smith would read comprehensively. And also that he would start giving, he would start kind of not preaching, but arguing with other people about his ideas about the interpretation of scripture, which that is also part of this self-improvement process at the time. If people understand that in this self-improvement, one of the ways that you developed your understanding, the way that you got a better handhold, the way that you learned how to present yourself in this society, which inevitably was through oratory, is having these little debates. It might be in the debate society. It might be at the bookshop. And, and we know that we, he was doing this at the bookshop and as well as in the juvenile debate society. So he's involved in things that are extracurricular beyond the common school education. So when, anyway, getting back to this thing, oh, he only had a third grade education. That is just wrong. Yeah. And, and, and we should know enough now. And there's a lot more to be done. But, 
we should know enough now that making that kind of argument just doesn't work. And the other thing too, what children learned and how they learned it in a common school is so very different from a modern uh, day common school. I mean, how many, how many um, kids going to kindergarten or first grade at public school are memorizing passages from the new Testament in order to learn how to read. And then how yeah. many of them uh, in order to demonstrate their knowledge, you know, because they didn't have grades in Joseph Smith day. It's not like you get an A, B or C on some assignment. What they would do to demonstrate what they learned is at the end of their term, they would have to get up and all the families would come uh, leaders in the local uh, like churches or political leaders. And everybody would be sitting there while the children got up and then started doing recitations, poems they had memorized, New Testament passages they had memorized, or dialogues with other students. You didn't have to do multiple things. Even things like geography or math, you had to demonstrate your knowledge of it through oral performance. So people would ask you questions and you would have to be responding. It's, they didn't have a big chalkboard where everybody would you know, do a test and yeah. show their work on a chalkboard. It was all oral. And uh, so what Joseph Smith would have gone through and the record that we have of what he did, um, he was much, much more educated from all of these different venues and particularly in the skill of oratory and oral performance than, than some of these representations of him barely having a third grade education. It's just not true. And, uh, and so it's kind of frustrating when people manipulate or refuse to apply a more impartial and open-minded view of the historical past because there's an agenda to make Joseph look illiterate. They're, they're, and because they have that agenda, it's putting on blinders. And, 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 and what does that do? How does that help Mormonism when here you have your founding prophet and you want to know everything about his life? You want to I mean, he's, he's a model for what happens when you're in circumstances where you're disadvantaged and look what he did, mm -hmm, right? You know, look how hard he worked, looked at all the things he did to improve himself. All of that gets buried and knocked aside because of some bad apologetics who want to make him look illiterate. It's, it's sad and it's unfortunate. And, um, you know, I think it, it, if I were still participating in the church, um, I would be kind of upset. But I, I, I really hope that in the future that the scholars can um, take a closer look because there are still things yet to find there. Well, that that kind of segues nicely into my sort of the question I wanted to ask you to wrap up. Um, as as far as your book is concerned, what are what are your hopes and um, in what ways do, do you hope that it contributes to, to Mormon scholarship? What would you like to see? What I would like to see is, and I think this is already happening um, in Mormon scholarship, because when my book came out, it's around the same time when some other book came, books came out, um, Producing Ancient Scripture, the collection right. of essays um, by Mike Hubbard McKay and Mark Asher's McGee and Brian Hocklet and uh, Sam Brown uh, came out. His book came out very soon. And, uh, and then also uh, a book that I don't think has gotten enough attention that I think is really fabulous is uh, uh, Ron Barney's Joseph Smith. Um, huh. There are some, yeah. there's some 
points where he and I see some of the historical documents differently. Um, but I, I don't want that to attract it all. Yeah, it's Ronald Barney, Joseph Smith, History, Methods, and Memory. Fantastic work being done by, I think, excellent scholars. And, and But all of these came out roughly. It's, uh, Ron's book came out about a month after mine. Sam Brown's book, I can't remember exactly when his came out, but it was around the same time. And then uh, these essays. And what these essays are all showing um, is that Joseph Smith was not a passive translator. And, and the idea that Joseph Smith was reading words on a seer stone seems to be falling more and more out of favor. And the reason why is because the evidences that are enlisted for the tight control, those evidences are too ambiguous to have a single interpretation. And there are there are alternative interpretations that, in my personal point of view, better explain the textual phenomena than the idea of seeing words on a seer stone. There's a lot of evidence that points to something else going on, where Joseph Smith himself was articulating mm -hmm. whatever his experience was in that process, and that he actively participated in the shaping of the text. Uh, and we spoke a little bit about that, the shaping of sermons. And here we have this very much a modern sermon style happening in the Book of Mormon. Well, then we can we can look at it and say, well, if Joseph Smith is an active translator, then the, this is some of the residue of his participation there. So there are ways to look at that. And uh, and I think a lot of really good LDS scholarship is is going that direction and pointing out more and more things, um, evidences and uh, events that do point that direction. And so, so I just hope that, and another thing about my book, um, I think the things that went into the construction of the book, and I say this in the book itself, um, right. and that is that I focused on one area, and that's sermon culture. But that sermon culture alone, I mean, even though it gives us an idea of the core structuring, how the core narrative could be structured, and then how the narrative could be performed, there are a lot of details about how that all took place. And, and so that that requires, and I said this in the book, that sermon culture was just one aspect. It's like one piece of a larger pie. And so there's a lot yet to be talked about. Um and I have to say, it's hard when people attack me and say, oh, this fails as a complete explanation of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, did people read it? Because I never claimed it was a complete explanation. But, right. you know, people, if they want, if they're looking for problems, they find them, even if they have to fabricate them, and which is unfortunate. But anyway, coming back to the book, that's how I see it participating is fundamentally to start looking at how Joseph Smith actively participated and how much or how little starts to fall into areas of belief. I'm not interested in telling people what to believe or what not to believe, but I am interested in looking at the evidence and seeing it for what it is and not building, not doing a bunch of mental gymnastics to try to get around it. <laughs> right. Well said. Do you, um, do you have any future projects that you'd like to, uh, uh, explore or maybe any uh, that are coming down the, the pipe that you feel like you can share or 
Um, <laughs> anything like that? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's hard to say. I, I know that there are projects that I could do. I hope uh, this hasn't burned you, I guess is what I'm saying. I hope there's more oh. to come. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there, there are actually a lot of things that, that I could pursue. One thing that I do like, and this, this actually goes outside of Mormon studies itself, but I've always been interested in uh, source criticism, or in other words, the way that an author might appropriate someone else's work and adapt it in the construction of their own work. And I've been looking that in the field of biblical studies, although I can see how there might be ways to, you know, use the Book of Mormon as um, a case study, perhaps. But, um, you know, some of these things are still up in the air. I, another thing is looking at the language of the Book of Mormon and um, showing how the Book of Mormon is constructed with an oral formulaic system. I know that that seems to be that claim of mine, which I made in my dissertation, seems to be controversial. Some people say that there is no form oral formulaic system in the Book of Mormon, but 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 there is one, and I think the problem is that people um, understand oral formulaic systems in a very narrow way that mm-hmm. usually goes back to studies in Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. And that type of oral formulaic, oral formulaic system is not in the Book of Mormon. But what the Book of Mormon does have is very definitely a system of another kind. So, so I, I may write about that maybe down the road. Um, but there, my whole interest in textual studies actually began with Shakespeare. And right. so uh, I may just go off and do Shakespeare. So <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. He might be a little uh, a little safer than uh, than Joseph Smith, right? <laughs> Actually, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're glutton for punishment, then. Uh, yeah, apparently the the things I found interesting. I mean, the the Shakespeare scholars can be just as vicious and mean as anything I've encountered <laughs> in some of my detractors with Mormon studies. Um, and and the difference is some of the people who have attacked me are are maybe not uh, as thoroughly versed in the field as maybe they should be to make some of the claims they're making. When you go to Shakespeare, though, you got people who are extremely well-versed in everything. Yeah, yeah. And so when they attack you, it tends to actually hurt compared to uh, situations where you just have to shrug and walk off. But anyway, yeah, it's a rough world. Well, I think we've we've covered all the all the most important aspects. And I just want to, uh, again, thank you for, for coming on to, to the podcast, spending some time with me talking about uh, these things. I think I speak for a lot of people when I say, I hope that uh, there'll be more projects from you in, in the future. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I, I appreciate you uh, getting in touch with me and giving me a chance to kind of express some of my views. Well, that's uh, William Davis, um, author of Visions in a Seer Stone, Joseph Smith and the Making of the Book of Mormon. Thanks again for being here. Thank you for listening to the Talk Mormonism podcast. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen. It also helps when you leave us a review so others can find out about the show. Thanks again.